Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is The Backstory from Tep Investigations, where we sit down with our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. For the past year, a team of journalists from Columbia Journalism Investigations and the Center for Public Integrity has worked with Type to look into the growing need for climate relocation around the U.S. Through data analysis and on-the-ground reporting, the series investigates how hurricanes, floods, and wildfires are affecting vulnerable communities and how the federal government isn't prepared for the challenge of moving a growing number of people out of harm's way. Today, we talked to two members of the reporting team, Alex Lubin and Olga Laganova, about how they obtained the data necessary for the investigation, how they developed sources in affected communities, and the challenges of working on a large project with multiple stories. Climate change and the problems it's causing around the country and the world is one of the most important issues of our time, but it's also a vast topic that's been reported on extensively. How did you come to focus on the issue of climate relocation and what the government is doing or not doing to move people out of harm's way? What was the reporting process like in the beginning stages? Well, I'd, I'd been thinking about this for a while. I think I think I started thinking about it around Sandy. There was some relocation happening in New York, particularly on Staten Island, there was a, a buyout process that I was following closely. And I'd actually pitched the story and uh, didn't land it anywhere. But I'd done a bunch of reporting. I'd been following what had been happening in Yale Jean Charles for, for years and years. I think one of the fundamental questions about climate change is like, you know, where are we to live in a climate change world? Um, and I think I just kept pulling on that thread and that led us to this this series of stories. What could I even add to that? In a way, it landed on that my plate a bit because I got the fellowship, but also as I started to dig deeper and I like focused on the stories of communities in Louisiana, in Alaska, and the idea of this displacement or climate displacement was kind of touching a chord with me and even in a personal way. And so the deeper I went, the more interested I got into the topic. Alex and I started at the same time. So we kind of just, there was a lot of reading and there was a lot of reading of Alex's notes. Alex has, uh, attended a, a conference on managed retreat. So I was trying, just basically, I had to plunge into it and learn as much as I could in a very short amount of time. I think that was the time when we spoke to dozens of researchers on managed retreat. And we tried to kind of, use the uh, broad strokes to paint the picture of what's going on. And the more detailed the picture got, the more we understood that there's just not enough funding in some communities and those communities had a lot in common. I think there's also like a real market failure element to like flooded homes. I mean, this is something that it, it strikes me that might require a certain degree of government intervention. There's no like you can't sell a home that's flooded repeatedly. Poor people can't move, can't afford to move on their own. They're, and I think, you know, the idea of, of people being stranded in place is what we sort of honed in on with this series. People who are in places that are under increasing threat because of climate change hazards, they're flooded repeatedly. Their houses have burned down several times. You can't sell a home that's burned down and you can't sell a home that's flooded a bunch the only recourse for these folks seemed to be to go to the government to ask for some kind of assistance. Um, the same government that would have allowed building in the area in the first place. And what we found was that people weren't getting the assistance, the assistance that, that they pretty desperately needed. 
So one of the unique things about this project is that the reporting team analyzed three decades of federal disaster declaration data to identify communities repeatedly hit by major hurricanes, floods, or wildfires. Uh, and you also looked at government spending data to see which communities are receiving assistance to help residents relocate or prepare for future disasters. Did you face any challenges in obtaining the data? Was the process of analyzing the data difficult? The short answer to that is uh, yes. <laughs> but like every every step of this was 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 difficult. Um, the first idea that we had um, in terms of the data that we really wanted to look at was we wanted to get our hands on essentially rejected applications to the programs that we were interested in. So we wanted the applications from communities who had applied for help to relocate and hadn't been able to secure funding for whatever project they were seeking. So to that end, we filed a FOIA in August of like basically exactly a year ago. I think it might have been a year ago today, actually. Um, we filed a FOIA with FEMA asking for, for applications that they had not approved for a slew of programs. Uh, Olga filed FOIAs to HUD. Uh, neither of those came back. We did get some documents back from FEMA in the end, about a week before we published. So like basically a full year later, HUD did not send us anything. So what we ended up doing was analyzing mostly publicly available data. The one other data set that we got was on address level data on completed FEMA buyouts. So where FEMA had purchased property uh, and returned, you know, demolished the house, returned the land to open space, focus of the second story, really. Just uh, one note in the spirit of fairness, HUD did get back to us with one uh, portion of the requested documents. But again, that portion was pretty much available online. I had this relationship with HUD FOIA officers as if like their boyfriends who ghost me or gaslight me. They're either passive aggressive or just hostile or just disappear for months. And this is just has been very strange experience considering that you are working with a federal agency. Yeah, thanks for I, I had forgotten about that HUD response. But so, yeah, we, we ended up working with mostly publicly available data uh, and this buyout data to basically look at places that were highly impacted by climate-related disasters, and experts told us that those were really, you know, there are other types of disasters that are likely climate-impacted, but in, in the interest of being conservative in terms of just looking at disasters that were certainly driven, like, going to increase with climate change, we looked at hurricanes, floods, and wildfires, places that were highly impacted by those three types of disasters, places that hadn't gotten much federal funding or had gotten a lot of federal funding through the programs that we were interested in. And then we looked at the demographics of those places to see, like, are places that are getting a lot of funding through these programs more white or less white? Are they more rich or more poor? Are there other demographic factors that sort of correlate with the amount of funding that a community might get? And that was really, yeah, that's what we ended up doing. Um, we also worked with a, a researcher at Columbia who created a, well, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> ballistic model. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, she pulled, she pulled our data into, into a model that basically allows us to say communities in this state that have experienced more disasters are more likely to have a higher proportion of residents of color. You know, one of the nice things about this fellowship is was that we were given time to sort of learn new skills. I didn't really know how to do any of this before uh, I, I started. This was my first big data project. I learned how to map with, you know, GIS. I have spent more hours staring at Excel than I like ever had before. There, it was a lot of work. 
a lot of work. And Zach, my co-reporter on on the data section, really like did a lot of the heavy lifting too. How did the uh, data analysis help you and the rest of the reporting team uh, decide where to do on the ground reporting? Yeah, we used we used the data in two ways. One was to like take a nationwide look at how these programs were operating, and the other way, you know, to be able to say things like, in counties with more black residents, there tends to be less FEMA spending through these programs. I'm not sure that that's exactly true across the country. Take a look at the stories because we put that statement very clearly. But the other thing that we did with the data was use it to find communities to go report on further. And we were really looking across. I mean, there wasn't in the end a like super formulaic way that we identified communities that we wanted to report on. We we kind of wanted a mix of different types of communities. We wanted very rural communities. We had a community in Alaska, which didn't appear in the data set at all. We had communities in the Midwest that had experienced multiple floods and were predominantly you know, poor and Black. We also wanted to be focused on communities that were representative of the problems like nationwide. So if a community that was highly impacted by hurricanes across the country, those communities tend to our Gulf communities, they tend to have a higher proportion of Black residents. We wanted to feature a community that was highly impacted by hurricanes that had a higher proportion of Black residents. Same same went for fires and floods. But we, I mean, we we were looking across like all of all of the different whether they had a lot of FEMA spending, whether whether they were highly impacted by disasters, and whether demographics were like we plugged this all into a map that we could see it and like zoom in. And uh, yeah, it really informed. It was it was sort of like. In the early process of, of reporting these stories, we really tried to allow ourselves to be guided by the data. Olga, you went through all of this with us too. Like, even though I was manipulating the data, you were looking for these communities and trying to decide what to focus on. Yeah, I think we were going step in step because, of course, both Alex and I were trained in science reporting. We we come from the same program. So some things seem very intuitive and natural. You you would expect hurricanes somewhere in the Gulf, in Louisiana, Texas. You're also always kind of inundated with the news about disasters. I, I think we felt sh- strongly that there, there was supposed to be a system and then some sort of an order even if it was not rigid. So we would get back and talk, and we talked a lot. What shows up in the data and what stories are there and what's being untold? Yeah, sometimes you could see how data is very helpful, but also sometimes you see how imperfect it can be. Because, like, for instance, um, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, if we look at the our first day story, our, our first story in this series kind of plunges uh, into this snapshot of the community in Louisiana, in Ironton community, right, Plaquemines Parish. And if you look at the FEMA spending there, there's a lot of money, right? But does it end up where it is needed? And what we found out through uh, through our reporting and through field reporting that no, there is no money there. And what kind of a community is this? And we understand that this is a historical black community. And then they have been struggling with getting funding for decades, if not hundreds of years. So I think the communication between us was very important. And we try to kind of build a path and support our data with what we see from talking to people and just also kind of making our on the ground or on the phone initially reporting richer and deeper, but looking at numbers. And also, I think Alaska was a great example. Uh, and I'm going to wrap this portion up 
it's not in the like data. And this also is a story. Like the maps, FEMA map, like flat flat plane for flat flat maps, they're not there. They're not they're imperfect. You don't see the numbers uh in all the other data sets. So what do we do? Do we exclude Alaska or do we just try to actually put it on the map or on the mind map for all of us? telling that this is the problem, this is a story, and there are hundreds of Alaska Native villages that are like kind of right now struggling. Olga, for the third article in the series, you and your co-author Zach Castle spent a lot of time in Louisiana reporting on the Ile de Jean Charles project, which is a test case for how the government could voluntarily resettle communities threatened by climate change. As you detail in your reporting, this was a messy, complicated project with multiple stakeholders, the federal government, state agencies, a nonprofit group, and two local tribes. How did you go about developing sources in these communities? Very slowly and very carefully. Alex has mentioned that he's been hearing and kind of uh, keeping track on the story for years, right? So the fact that Eldejan Charles is going is kind of crumbling or losing land. It's it's not news. People have known about it for decades, right? And of course, this is the community that experiences some of the most extreme effects of climate change. They have lost 98% of the land mass and they got the money for resettling, at least like on the surface. This is what you hear. Like when I was doing the research of news clips and what's been told and all the numerous documentaries what struck me or what caught my attention is that there are like two different narratives there is the uh, first the overwhelming positive optimistic narrative that these people are the first climate refugees hooray or like climate pioneers this is the preferred term that the state uses to describe people who lived or live on the island but then the more we read about it the more we understood that this like the the optimistic story is so simplistic and when i started to first of all the first people who i could get a hold of were the researchers who worked on the project who supported the um one of both tribes and somehow a very different narrative emerged just through trying to pull the threads together, I realized that the reality on the ground is one thing and the media narrative is a very different thing and it's not helping in some ways. For months, I personally was not sure that I could tell the story because I could not reach the tribal citizens. And also I'm not indigenous. I'm, you know, as you can hear, I'm not even from around here. It was never a given that I would be, that th this door would open. Of course, we could report around it and we filed for public records surrounding like the whole process, the six-year-old project that the state of Louisiana was administering to resettle people from the island. This is very like, oh, on surface again, very simple. There is this island that's crumbling. There are people who live in the island. There are not too many people not too many. So basically you need to kind of pick them up and put them in a different location, which is also not so, so far away, 40 miles away, but not so simple, of course. Of course, we could see the papers and like what people were saying to each other, but that was not telling the whole story. So I just like kept 
calling and emailing and really reading the same documents over and over again, over and over again. And um, then when I was, yeah, I just kind of found personal phone numbers for um, chiefs of several tribes. And I just started calling them and leaving voicemails. And all of a sudden, I don't know, I don't know who helped me. And I'm pretty sure that I had a lot of help. I would not be able to tell the story without the help from every, every, well, stakeholder, I don't know how I feel about it because those are all people who have been and are involved and the tribes, the researchers, the NGO that work, work still still works with the tribe and helps the tribe, another tribe, uh, the United Homo Nation, uh, and then the OCD, the Louisiana's Office of Community Development, they, like many people, have burned out on this project. They worked so hard. And th those are not just abstract people. And there were people who also felt that the story needed to be told. Without them, this would not be possible. It's only because I have like pretty decent relationships with like members of each community and who somehow miraculously trust me. Or maybe they don't trust me, but they tolerate me enough. Because, and I think that's the, probably the, the fair way to put it. Because again, I'm a stranger to them, right? But I think every single person there understands how important it is and how important what has been happening is. And they all kind of many, all parties feel that their story has not been told or has not been told correctly. And so somehow I was in the right place in the right time. And maybe the fact that I am kind of a foreigner, maybe it made it easier in a way. The only okay. party I couldn't talk to is HUD. <laughs> they, don't talk. they just don't what do you think journalists should keep in mind when reporting on communities that are socially and economically vulnerable first thing don't call them vulnerable i think that's the key thing they're not vulnerable like very often these communities are really resilient very smart they know how to lead their lives it's uh, very often it's people of different color, with different incomes, with different amount of power, who kind of put them in conditions that kind of, yeah, make them vulnerable. So I think that's the first thing. Don't, don't consider or call them vulnerable. And also, I think it's, uh, you need to be like self-aware of who you are, where you come from. On the one hand, I have no relation to anyone, right? But also I have no relation to either of you, right? Like, who am I to tell anyone's story? But if I start overthinking that, I'm like, what am I going to do, right? We're still humans and we all have had our lives and there is a part that can connect. So be empathetic because those are human beings who sometimes have to solve like the dilemmas and problems that pro probably would not be solvable to like by a nuclear physicist. Because they have to navigate systems that have been built to make everything difficult or impossible. For instance, like I talked to a lawyer who tries to help a few families in Louisiana, a few black families to get uh, individual aid from FEMA. And this is a lawyer who has a PhD and she, you know, has tried to understand this, this system for decades. And she doesn't know how to answer the questions in the application. Why is that? Why is the system like, why do you need a PhD to get help after a disaster? 
So I think that's also very important to keep in mind. And again, just like be a human being, like you're a human being. Yeah, you tell stories, but I think it's as humans, we have a lot in common, more in common that, you know, with other species, but also be aware of your differences and yeah, just be genuine, humble and grateful, really, because they don't have to talk to you. I think I really learned to like allow communities not to trust you at first through this reporting project. Like, I always put this well already, but this came up for me in Freeport, which was in the day two story. There were a lot of folks who really just didn't want to talk. I was a white reporter coming into a predominantly black community. Um, but I think giving folks the space not to trust you allowed them to eventually sort of come back around and be willing to talk to me. Um, interestingly enough, like after the first story published last now 10 days ago or whatever, I got calls from folks in Freeport who are like, oh, this is the kind of reporting that you're doing. Like, we want to talk to you now. It took, so for some people it took, it took a while, but um, I think, you know, the feedback that I'm getting after publication from them is, is good. The luxury of uh, this kind of reporting is that you, you get to give people time to, to consider whether or not they want to engage with you. And uh, the longer you stick around, the more likely and the more understanding you are of why people might not want to talk to you, um, the more likely they are to eventually come around. What were some of the challenges of working on a project with multiple stories and multiple reporters? I think it took us a really long time to figure out how we were going to structure the series. We spent like the first like five months of this project, like gathering reporting from everywhere. Like I did a bunch of reporting in Washington state that didn't make it into the series. Olga did reporting along the Texas, Mexico border that didn't make it in. But, but, you know, we were, we were just really like fanning out looking for communities that we thought might make compelling, uh, case studies for the problems with the programs that we were trying to illustrate. It wasn't until like, I don't know, maybe February, um, we'd been working on the store on, on reporting these stories for several months before we decided, all right, it's a three story series. The first one, first story is ultimately about places that tried to get help to relocate and didn't get it. Second story is about places that actually got the grant, but still, you know, things weren't going so well. And then the third story was focused on Yelda Jean Charles specifically. Um, that didn't come until way later. Uh, and it took a lot of back and forth to figure out how to how to do that. I think we decided earlier because I went to Louisiana in January. And by that time, we I think yeah, I think we knew that the Yelda Jean Charles story was going to be a standalone. Right. The first two stories, because then, you know, we were thinking about like doing just like five case studies. True. And we were like, we can't do that too much. Three stories was ended up being a lot. I can't imagine what five would have been like. But yeah, in terms of working with multiple reporters and multiple editors, there was this was like the biggest team project that I've personally ever worked on. Um, we had four reporters and three editors, and then like a data editor and other folks involved. I mean, the, Jamie did a great tweet thread last week thanking everybody who was involved, and the list is like enormous. Um, there was just a lot of communication that had to happen. We were constantly talking. Olga's already mentioned that she and I were constantly talking, but it was, we were talking, Zach and I were talking, Julia and I were talking, and then we were all talking to the editors, like constantly. I was actually, I was talking to an old boss of mine about this project a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, I mean, there was just a lot of, there was, there were a lot of people involved. There were three editors and he was like surprised when I told him that I felt that that had made the story better. He was like, usually having so many people involved like things just get bogged down, but they're really, at the end of the day, like 
everyone brought, you know, a lot to these stories. I think having three sets of editing eyes on it in particular was like crucial. Um, these stories are big and complicated. A lot of cuts had to be made. Uh, and the stories and and like a lot of tightening of language and making sure that everything was clear, having like editors come in at different points in the process actually really, I think, benefited the series. One thing to add to that is just like from a personal perspective, it, it was a lot of work. I think the topic is so, what's the right word? Yeah. It affects everyone. It affects us. It affects everyone in the country. It really affects everyone in, in, in this world. And we, we hear about it every day, right? The heat waves in Europe and Asia and many African countries. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. It was all-encompassing. And um, I think that's the only thing I've been thinking about throughout the year. No, there was a war. But between the war and climate change, that, that was it. That was that kind of be, I think became what uh, operandi. You you wake up, you think about it, you think about your stories, you you think about what's happening, and what's the legislation. What are these folks doing? What are these folks doing? How are these people doing? What's the solution? And uh, in a way, I think it was a kind of also not a light story because there is no easy way out and it's not a unfortunately i don't think it's a solution story because what we show is kind of pretty dramatic and sad and uh, personally yeah I, I, I could feel this sadness just always thinking what can make it better or why are people not reacting why are people not make uh, doing more and uh, so my last question is, uh, what advice would you have for reporters interested in working on larger collaborative projects? I mean, it's hard to do like do without the structure of a fellowship like the one that we were in or without a newsroom like the Center for Public Integrity or type like we had we just had a lot of resources behind this project. So I guess the first first piece of advice is like find yourself a newsroom that does this kind of work and like connect with them. And uh, there aren't that many out there. Um, but if you can get a foot in the door with, with them, that is the first step for sure. As far as like actually going through a big collaborative pro process, I think like, I don't know. I mean, we definitely all said the same thing over and over again to several people like, like there, there, there is like a certain amount of patience that you have to have when you're working with so many different people, like getting everybody on the same page takes time, but the projects really do turn out better for it. Like making, getting, getting like six different reporters and editors, well, there were more involved in this project, but getting a bunch of people on the same page, like helps sharpen your ideas and helps like, like make the project really concise and strong, but it does take some patience. I think, um, working with a large group of people might extend the time that it takes to produce a project like this. And that's something you got to be willing to, to have happen. Yeah, I, I totally and fully agree with you. I think having a newsroom backing you up is paramount and having the freedom of knowing, yeah, I can do this research and it doesn't have to lead somewhere in particular for this story, but it's still valuable. Like we did research in colonias uh, in like in the south of Texas or along the U.S. Mexican border of Texas, their colonies, of course, in other states. I don't know if it's possible. Or like that that's my honest response. 
you really need to be independently wealthy to do it as a freelancer. <laughs> There's no way to do it as a freelancer. I like uh, I happen to be like at the shorter end of the one researcher called me a hunter gatherer because like for a portion of time <laughs> I was on grants and I felt it. I feel it now. Like yeah. hunting and gathering and it's yeah. not the harvest season. So just also, I don't know, there should be a discussion with the newsrooms. Like, what are you thinking? If you really need quality work that takes months to produce, you really need to have those people and cultivate them. This is important. I think there is no doubt that the story, this, these stories that we have been working, I think we all went in knowing that these are important stories. And, we, and as we continue talking and working on them, we understood how much more important than we thought it initially the stories can be. You can read the Harm's Way series at the Center for Public Integrity or the Type Investigations website. Check our show notes for links to the series. You can listen to audio versions of Public Integrity's signature investigations on Integrity Out Loud. And check out CPI's second season of The Heist, examining the vast wealth gap between Black and white Americans and one woman's quest to open a Black-owned bank. Find both wherever you listen to podcasts. A transcript of this backstory is available at typeinvestigations.org backstory.